Before I begin my sermon, uh, I have some happy news. Many of you know that our daughter Marta and her family have been living with us as they transition from Virginia to the Pacific Northwest. Um, they've been with us for five months. And uh, Drew received a call this last Tuesday offering him his dream job, which is uh, Assistant Policy and Budget Analyst for the Budget and Management Office for the State of Oregon. And they have moved two, two carloads of belongings to Salem. They drove down yesterday, and so he will begin his new job on Monday. I tell you this because uh, Drew and Marta appreciated so much while they were here uh, your love and your prayers, your advice, your referrals, and your friendship. And uh, they remember you with grateful hearts and lots of love. So I just wanted to let you know that. After hearing Sonia's uh, time with children, I almost said, Sonia, that we don't even need to preach because that it was absolutely beautiful. Um, a good word. Paul writes to Timothy, whom he calls my beloved child, blessing him with God's grace, mercy, and peace. And he tells Timothy that he prays for him night and day. Paul writes with love and tenderness, recalling Timothy's tears. He longs to see him. And then come these words. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure lives in you. Rekindle this gift, Paul tells him. Keep the fire going. Stir it to life. In the ancient world, in Greece and Rome, the hearth was sacred. It was the center of a family's life. It was a fire that never went out. It was kept alive. And it burned constantly in every household. Keeping it going was a matter of devotion. In the pagan world, it was a necessity. It was essential. It was an act of worship, according to Larry Seidentop in his fascinating book, Inventing the Individual. In his letter, Paul draws on this Greek and Roman tradition of the family hearth and the flame that must never be extinguished, must never go out. In the ancient world, it was the man who tended the fire. But here, Paul makes it clear it was the woman, the women, in Timothy's life who kept the fire going. It was Timothy's grandmother and his mother who kept faith alive. Reading about Timothy's 
grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. And this is the only place where they are mentioned by name. I was reminded that it was through them, in them, that the grace, love, and mercy of God was made real for Timothy. It was the women who nurtured him and encouraged him, without whom, Paul suggests, Timothy would not have known Jesus. I wish we knew more about Lois and Eunice. In Acts 16, Luke tells us, Paul went to Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. His father, he adds, was a Greek. And that's all we know. A Jewish grandmother and a Jewish mother who were believers in Jesus and a Greek father. In Timothy's family, two worlds came together. The point here is that faith does not come out of nowhere. Devotion to God is nurtured and tended like a fire and kept alive by those who came before us. Reading about Eunice and Lois, I started thinking about Hilda and Myrtle. Hilda was my Lois, my grandmother, and Myrtle was my Eunice, my mother. Hilda was born in Decorah, Iowa, to Norwegian Lutheran immigrant parents. She spoke Norwegian all her life and never lost her accent. Her English wasn't so much broken as it was flavored by Norwegian. She used to sing a song to me, and the refrain went something like this. White Road Daniels are singing Ever around the broad throat Then no then shall I see it Beautiful, beautiful home Home, beautiful home Bright, beautiful home Home, home of my Savior bright, beautiful home. It took me years to figure out what a white Rodaniel was. It's a white-robed angel. <laughs> white-robed angels are singing ever around the broad throne. When, oh when shall I see it? Beautiful, beautiful home. Home, beautiful home. Bright, beautiful home. Home, home of my Savior, bright, beautiful home. She and her sister, Christina, gave their lives to God at a tent meeting in McIntosh, Minnesota, when they were in their teens. Hilda homesteaded in North Dakota, ran a restaurant in Saskatchewan, lost her first husband, much too young, to a massive cerebral hemorrhage, then married his brother, my grandfather, they homesteaded above the rim near Cutbank, Montana. They scratched out a living and raised six children, one of whom was my mother, Myrtle. 
During the Great Depression, the family moved to Washington, and there my mom met my dad and married, and I was their Timothy, the youngest of three kids. And the faith that lived in my grandmother Hilda and in my mother Myrtle now lives in me. Hilda loved God. Her faith was simple, but it was deep. Her hope was in Jesus. She and Grandpa lived in town on 3rd Street next to the railroad tracks. And after Grandpa died, she lived with us on the farm for 17 years until her death, just short of 96 years old. In my grandma's later years, my father would look at me with a wink and a smile and say, Steve, take good care of grandma after we're gone. (laughs) Hilda told me stories. She spoke truth, always with love. She laughed until she cried, and she cried until she laughed. She was my friend, and she was my protector. Once, when I was five years old, I was playing in the backyard of the house on 3rd Street, and I climbed up through the blackberry vines onto the Great Northern Railroad tracks. I thought it would be lots of fun. I thought it would be a good idea. Looking south, I watched the afternoon freight train coming down the tracks from Conway toward me. Seeing me on the tracks, my grandma Hilda pushed through the blackberry vines and ran onto the tracks. She swept me up in her apron and hauled me down to the backyard as the train rolled past. And she scolded me. She said some stern words. Stevie, you should never go onto the railroad tracks, ever. You could have been killed dead. And then she gave me a cookie. (laughs) Sin, deliverance, judgment, and mercy. The grace of God in a cookie. So it was with Grandma Hilda and me for the rest of her life. And the faith that lived in her now lives in me. Same for my mom, Myrtle. She showed me again and again and again that faith does not look back, that our lives are not determined by what has been. Faith that trusts in God, hopes in what can be, she always said. Faith, the writer of Hebrews says, is the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That was Myrtle's faith, the faith that now lives in me. Why do I tell you these stories? Because every one of us has a lowest and a Eunice, in whom and through whom the fire of faith was kept alive. Mothers and grandmothers, or maybe for you it was more like Ruth and Naomi, 
whose husband had died and had no one. Ruth's husband died as well. She had no one. Wherever you go, she told Naomi, I will go. Whatever you do, I will do. Your people shall be my people, and your God will be my God too. Your hearth shall be my hearth. The fire that you tend, I will tend too. The faith that lives in you shall live in me. It will never die. And the faith that lived in Ruth, if you read to the end of the book of Ruth, would also live in David, the king. The fire was kept alive through generations. Who was, who is your Lois and your Eunice? Timothy's father is forgotten, but we remember Lois and Eunice. The same faith that lived in them lived in Timothy. The same deep trust in God. The same tender love that brought Paul to tears. Who was who is your Naomi? In whose faith and love have you found a shelter and a refuge? Who believed in you, believed for you, believed with you? Maybe they never pulled you off the railroad tracks, but without them you would not be alive, or you would be just barely alive and the fire of your faith would have burned out long ago. Whose faith now lives in you? Rekindle this gift. Stir it to life. Keep that fire burning. And who are the Timothys and the Ruths who now look to you and who will one day remember you with tears and a smile? and a cookie. Those you nurtured, those you encouraged, those you blessed, those you forgave, those you loved for no other reason than that you couldn't not do it. Because someone loved you. And in their love, through their love, you experienced the love of God burning warm and bright sacred stuff. When Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, the unmistakable and unforgettable image he evokes is from the Psalms, that of a mother hen who longs to gather her chicks under her wings, to give them refuge, to protect them. Psalm 17, 8, hide me under the shadow of your wings. And our psalm today, Psalm 121, is a psalm of an ever-watchful God, a God who never sleeps, who will not let your foot stumble, will not leave you on the railroad track. If that isn't a description of a mother, I don't know what is. The Lord is your keeper. All the more perplexing, then, when we read our gospel text from Mark, chapter 3, verses 31 to 35. It's almost 
An incidental aside, a little throwaway text. Jesus has called his disciples, and, and people are following him everywhere. And they're hanging on to every word, and they're hanging on to him. And he's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. He's telling stories. He's a rabbinic rock star. And his family, especially his mother, doesn't know quite what to do with this. In earlier verses, 19 to 21, we read this. Then Jesus went home, and the crowd came together again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to restrain him. That's a nice translation, isn't it? The word in the Greek, kratosai, has the meaning of to grab, to seize. They wanted to tie him up and drag him off. They tried to restrain him, Mark says, for people were saying, he has gone out of his mind. That's the setup for the text today. Jesus' family, more particularly Jesus' mother, thinks he has gone nuts. Now, this isn't a text that's usually preached. We don't talk a lot about this. In verse 31, then his mother and brothers came, standing outside. They came to him, sent for him from the edge of the crowd, and some in the crowd tell him, your mother and brothers and sisters are outside looking for you. And Jesus answers with a question. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? It's a peculiar question, but he's making a point. Anyone who does the will of God is my mother, my sister, my brother. Jesus here gives a new meaning to belonging and to family. It's not just those who gather around your hearth, not just those who gather around your fire, not just those who tend that fire, who keep it burning, who are your mother, your brother, your sisters, but all those who do the will of God. Jesus' mother and his family, at least for now, don't get it. Who is my mother, Jesus asks. Anyone can be your mother. Whoever does the will of God, whoever stirs up the flame of faith within you, a faith that lives in you still is your mother. Whoever does the will of God, and in them and through them, the love, grace, mercy, forgiveness, and justice of God is revealed, is your mother. It's Lois and Eunice. It's Naomi and Ruth. It's Hilda and Myrtle. But it's also those in this often broke up, broken and mixed up life in whom God lives, through whom we find a refuge and hope. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Anyone who does the will of God is my mother, my sister, my brother. Here we are, 
every last one of us today adopted in faith. Maybe your relationship with your mother was painful. Don't worry. You have a lot of mothers and brothers and sisters right here. I'm not sure if Jesus' mother appreciated the rhetorical question. Who is my mother? Who is my mother? I'll tell you who your mother is. The fact is that those closest to us sometimes just don't get it. When I was in my 20s, my mother couldn't figure me out. She told me with a laugh and some exasperation when I had decided to leave graduate school for the second time, well, if anybody asks us what you're doing, we'll just tell them we don't know. In that, she gave me the freedom to go to a far country, to go looking for God, and there to be found by God. And years later, she wrote to me, whatever you do, whatever you decide, you have my blessing, my dear, precious son. There is God, and the whole story. Mothers hold on tightly, and mothers let go. And so does God. And it is in letting go that the deepest trust, the deepest faith is revealed, and the fire is stirred up and keeps going. Thanks be to God. Amen.